This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the newly designed website. Spend a lot of money on that thing. And uh, I want to see people not make fun of it and say it looks like Blubber blew up and died anymore. Also, go and sign up for the Huey Deal Pipeline Club. Growing in size every day. And that really helps us get better deal flow. And, you know, when I go in and I say I have serious investors... I get a little bit of insider knowledge. And if you guys want to reach out to me about the deals on there, there's always a story behind these things. And also a lot of the talks I've been having, you guys can book a call and you know, chat with me, have been friends of friends of the first listeners to Simple Passive Cashflow. So I really appreciate you guys telling your friends about it, You know, hearing the feedback from uh, new listeners and then the listeners of listeners. Today I have Rocky Lavani. He is a financial coach. He is also in real estate. And I thought I'd bring him on the show today because a lot of the same teachings from the rich dad mentality, I thought we could bounce some ideas off each other. What I like is that, you know, you really live in a life of abundance and a lot of good ideas about teaching financial freedom to others. So Rocky, the first question I always like to ask is to get a little sense of what you're doing today is how much simple passive cash flow you're making and how are you doing it? Currently, I have five rentals. And the rentals bring in about $83,000 in uh, rents every year. But I have it set up at the current time that all of that money is being used to pay them down as fast as possible. At this point in my life, I don't need the cash flow. I want it in the future. And so it was designed so that when I'm closer to retirement, which isn't probably a true word. Uh, but as I get older, I want the cash flow to pay for my life so I can do other things. I also flip properties. I think currently we have uh, three properties in flow. And I have a partner on my, my property flips. And our goal on each property is to make about $20,000 on a flip. And most of these are, are first time home buyer homes. So they're, they're lower lower end homes. And in both of these situations, I don't really get involved in doing the work. I outsource as much stuff as possible to other people. So most of my time is just on the phone. So when did you start getting involved in, uh, you know, picking up passive real estate investments and the flipping? Rentals, I think in 2011. So that was probably towards the bottom of the market. And that's when opportunities started presenting themselves. I had always wanted to do real estate and I just never took that step and I regret that. So I'm 51 now and when I was in college, I actually had a, a real estate license to sell real estate and I did, uh, I did a couple deals when I was in college and then I got out and I kind of got away from real estate and over the years, I've, I've always watched and learned, but I was always hesitant to jump in. And now looking back, I see what a bad choice that was. Again, though, you know, looking back, I think had I got involved, probably the best time would have been around 2000. Interest rates were very different than they are today. No one knew that this is what was going to happen. I think back then interest rates were pushing 8%. So it's, it's different uh, cash flow in that type of a market. We call this the Han Solo moment. If you're familiar with Star Wars, 
Han Solo and his buddy Chewbacca were cruising the galaxy until as low-life smugglers, but then crossed paths with the right people, Luke and Leia, and their lives took a pivot point. So maybe describe the change that happened, because you obviously did something before you found real estate and uh, the passive income lifestyle. Uh, what was it that was the catalyst for that change? So I had always wanted to do real estate, but of course, taking the first step is the hardest. And it's 2011. Literally, I got hammered in the stock market really bad in 2008. I didn't realize that the, I didn't think the stock market per se was overvalued in 2008 as I did in 2000. But what happened was the the real estate collapse caused a global collapse. So it was kind of a domino effect. And at that point, I was like, I, very hesitant to get back into the market and I wanted to diversify. And so I was talking with uh, a friend of mine who was in a rental and I was like, Oh, I, I always think about buying uh, a house and creating a rental. I just haven't done it yet. And he said, Oh, well we live in a rental and we really hate it. We'd love to live in a house. Let me think about it. And three months later he calls me up and he says, I want to take you up on your offer uh, we'd like to rent a house from you. I was like, oh, crap. Now I got to go do something. And and I did. And I went out and we, we found a deal and we made it happen. And once I took the first step and learned how to do it, then all of the future steps became easier. And same thing kind of happened with flipping houses. At that time, you know, foreclosures were just a, a dime a dozen. And it was easy to get in and not get hurt. And when I got into the flipping business, my number one rule was I don't want to lift a hammer. So if we can find people to do the work, I'll do this. And I had a partner and that also helps having someone else to push you along. So those were probably the two pivot points for me. Very rare that somebody, you know, they wake up or they they have some internal thoughts and they make the choice on their own. It always seems to be a sort of external trigger, huh? Absolutely. Something's got to get you out of your current position and Trying to get you moving is probably one of the most difficult things. So Rocky, what's your worst life or business moment and what did you do after and what was the lesson learned? Honestly, I think the biggest hit I took was when the stock market crashed in, in 2000, 2008, 2009. In 2000, I knew the market was in a bubble. It was clear as day and I got out considerably in 2000. I got back into the market in 2003 and I had a wonderful run from 2003 to 2008, 2009. At that point, I'm looking around and I saw real estate was just crazy. I mean, the, the, the loans they were handing out, the valuations, it made absolutely no sense. And we all know what happened. And at the bottom of the market, when stocks were way down, I think the market at that point was down around 6,800. I just threw in the towel and said, enough losses. And that was the biggest mistake. I sold when I should have been buying. And had I not done that, it would have made a difference of six to seven figures. And so now I know that the next time things become cheap, I need to have the courage to run in when everyone's running out. You're someone who I like to chat with, people who have been through a couple of market cycles. 
obviously we're in a seller's market right now and you know things are pretty high what is your impression of the current economy or certain you know where evaluations are today are things a little bit ridiculous and are we looking for another recession in six to 18 months which what are you saying that's difficult to answer because i think each segment is a little bit different as we look at interest rates today i don't think we've ever been in a time where interest rates have been this low. I remember a time where interest rates were actually 18%, where you could go put money in the bank and get 18%, which is just crazy. If I could do that today, I'd be, you know, in hog heaven. I don't think we've ever been in such a time that interest rates are this low. And because of that, I think now is a good time to borrow long-term because you can lock in capital at very low rates guaranteed for the next 15 to 30 years, that's a smart move. The stock market currently is at very high valuations. Compared to historicals, it's pretty high. Does it mean it's going to not go up anymore? No, it can still continue to go up. It's just that when the market is so high, you just have to be ready that the market is going to come down at some point and not join the the euphoria and think that there's never going to be a bad point. So be ready to pivot on that side. I think real estate is very locally driven. So that's a question you have to look at your local markets and ask yourself a question. Can I buy real estate? Can I rent out the real estate? And can I make it run on a positive cash flow basis? And when I say positive cash flow, I mean paying the note, paying the taxes, paying for repairs because they do occur paying off your insurance. So all my costs, can I buy real estate and rent it for more than that? And is the area that I'm buying in an area that is continuing to improve versus decline? So if you're in a good area and it's improving and it's growing and you can make the numbers work, then go for it. But if it's not, you shouldn't. And I think a lot of people don't take the time to truly answer that question. And the other thing, I think you're going to see a systemic shift overall. Technology is dramatically changing the world. It's unprecedented and it's having, it's happening at an even faster pace. So you just have to be ready to continually learn and be ready to pivot as things dramatically change and take advantage of new opportunities as they come up. Last night I had another meeting and, you know, I run to these people who say they're cash flowing $400 and I'm like, well, you know, like, what are the numbers? What are you, uh, what are you renting it for? And what's the market that would you buy it for? And, you know, it's well below the 1% rules. In fact, it's like 0.8. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, like, like you said, like, you know, you'd account for all the maintenance repairs, vacancy, property management. Well, a lot of these people aren't, are doing their own property management and <laughs> that's another story, but it's got a cash flow because when things go bad, you know, that's your safety net. That's the difference between the jokers in 2008, you got bombed out and cash flow investors and key distinction there. It's getting harder and harder to find like, you know, I mean like the turnkey stuff because you're not doing any sweat equity. I mean, it's hard to make that stuff cash flow. So it's super critical to in your due diligence stage to know exactly what you're doing. So you can get every single dollar via negotiations or everything that's worth it to you. If not, you're probably going to be picking up a negative cash flow property. And Rocky, here's another question for you about the, the economy. Like, I guess from what I saw last time in 2008, 
the uh, housing market and the stock market were sort of connected. Is that usually how it is? I don't know that there is normally that correlation in a sense, because when the stock market collapsed in 2000, the real estate market took off and it bubbled out. I, I don't know that there's a direct correlation. I think in that case, people lost money in stocks and so they wanted to find a new safe haven and everyone always said you can't lose money in real estate well that turned out not to be true i think the reason real estate valuations are going up today is because unfortunately the mentality in this country is to buy a payment not to buy value so what i mean by that is people are saying I can afford $1,000 a month. What does $1,000 a month buy me? And when interest rates have dropped to such a low rate, $1,000 a month buys you more. However, when interest rates start to go up, people aren't going to be able to buy that same house. And so one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to buy lower or the value of houses is going to drop because the people who would normally buy them can't afford them. The price of that house has to drop. I don't like to make predictions going forward because I have no idea what's going to happen. But the reality is, is those are the numbers and they speak for themselves. Yeah. Now what you're alluding to is called the affordability index. It's not really a a score that's kind of kept, but it's the uh, monthly payment divided by, it has something to do with the interest rate, how much people can afford, how much monthly payments and that's just been going up and up and up. The affordability has been going a, a higher percentage of the family's income. And that's just, it's definitely a bubble territory. It is. And so when you think about rental real estate, the question is, is if you can cash flow and you have buffer, it doesn't matter what happens to the underlying property value, because as long as you still get your $1,000 a month rent, life is good. So right. as long as we have inflation, you will continue to grow as long as your loan is locked in. If you go buy a rental property with a five-year note that in five years, it's a commercial note that's going to reset and it's at 3% today and it goes to 8% in five years because the economy goes nuts, you're going to be in trouble. That's a risk you've really got to lock down. You want to make sure that your loans are locked and loaded for as long as possible because interest rates, they can't really go much lower. They can go a lot higher and you need to control that risk. People get a little upset when I say, you know, the turnkeys aren't really that great these days and they're like, well, what the heck do I do? But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're still making, you know, high single digits with cash flow, which not including all the other mortgage pay down and depreciation and all that other stuff. And quite frankly, like everything is, you know, they call it cap rate compression. Everything is, you know, the, the, the returns are just coming down and down on everything. You're not making your 12% cash flows anymore. You're making single digits on the turnkey stuff, multifamily apartment buildings. Maybe you're not making above 20% IRs. Maybe you're making 17% IRs. I mean, it's like, well, okay, so what else are you going to do? If you want to go flip a house and uh, hope that the music doesn't stop, go ahead. The inflation isn't going up as much. So that's kind of a saving grace. It's always a delta between inflation and what you're making is an important thing. What scares me about the stock market is 
And the reason I'm not in it is because the last downturn, you had these 400, negative 400 point days, and I'm sure we'll see a couple of negative 600 point days. What you're saying is that may not be correlated to people getting the housing market coming down a little bit. I guess intuitively, I think people see their 401k shrinking and then they just stop buying houses. Am I just not seeing something else there? The last time around, it went different because when the stock market crashed in 2000, interest rates started to come down and everyone was looking for a new opportunity to buy and they went to real estate. But back then, real estate was a cheaper asset in that point. Today, real estate's gone up a lot and the stock market's gone up a lot. So they're both that historical highs. I don't know that real estate's at a historical high, but stock market's at historical highs. It may be different this time. When people do see their 401ks go down, they do get more concern. They may spend a little bit less and they also look for alternative investments. And that's what you have to think about. What are the alternative investments? And at this point, we already know that if real estate's not cash flowing, then it's not a good alternative investment. You've got to look at something else out there. So you're telling me that when things get bad, the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast and the Richard Soul podcast might actually increase in viewership. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because then all of a sudden people have to think a little bit more about their money. They have to be more careful. And so they have to think about it a lot more. And I don't know where the next opportunity will come from. I'm not a person who says, you have to invest in stocks. You have to invest in real estate. You have to invest in gold. I'm a person who says, where is the opportunity at this time? And does that opportunity fit you? I don't think real estate is for everybody. Not everyone is the right fit for real estate. So you have to look at your skill set and say, what is my skill set? What are the things that I can do? And how does that fit in? Now, even within real estate, a person who might be a good landlord might not be a good flipper. And a person might be in real estate, might be just better at sales and go be a realtor. So even within the class of real estate, there's different ways to be involved and I, you have to match that up to your skill set, your needs, your desires, and see where they appropriately mesh across to find the right place for you. Because if you don't, you're going to get screwed because you're not in your zone. People call in from the podcast and I get to learn a little bit about their financial history and where they're at and what they're doing. And I find a lot of these guys, people that listen to podcasts, they're usually a lot of high performers, you know, some uh, entrepreneurs, I know like Amy Wong, like, you know, she made the decision not to buy rental properties because her highest and best use is put every single penny of her capital into her own business. This is something that I'm not quite as good. You know, I know real estate and I know how to optimize it. And I tell people to do this, this, and this, but you know, some people, like you said, they don't want to be a landlord. What would you say is the next best thing. Again, it really depends on who you are. So I'm looking at a new opportunity now. When I look at my flips and I say, I'm going to make, if I'm going to make 20,000 on a flip, it take nine months, right? By the time I buy a property, get the offer accepted, go to closing, 90 days to, to rehab, get a contract, sell it. That whole process takes a while. And at the end of it, I come away with $10,000, but I go through a lot of risk. So I, I'm thinking of hard money lending, which is go find a flipper who's really good at what they're doing 
and lend into them. And on a $100,000 investment, you could easily make 10%. And in today's market, 10% is phenomenal, which considerably, I don't have to do anything at that point, right? Except lend the money and wait the year for him to flip it and give it back to me with an extra 10%. So that is another way to get involved. But in that case, you need to have the money to hard lend out to somebody. You don't want to go borrow that money and lend it if you can't handle the whole deal falling apart. If you uh, want to come over to the Simple Passive Cash Flow website, check out the Hui Deal Pipeline Club, and you guys can pick up deals like uh, private money lending at 12%. You know, I don't really put on the 10% stuff. I see 12% as the standard rate, so that's what I put up there. Unfortunately, a lot of the deals are hard to come by, so <laughs> that's the problem. And you have to vet the person doing the deal in the sense that you don't want to go lending money to someone who's doing his first flip who has no clue what they're doing because that's a high risk. And if the deal falls apart and he doesn't have the resources to pay you back and, you know, do you want a house that's 2000 miles away from you? That's halfway fixed up in a market you don't understand. You really need to know what you're doing if you're going to do this. Yeah. And when I do private money lending, I, I currently have one note out and another or second note. I don't invest private money lending you know, on flips in Seattle. I mean, quite frankly, I think bet on the economy. If uh, the economy corrects, you know, that flip is kind of upside down. I invest in these flips out in the Midwest where I know I can rent it out. And that's the first question I ask. If this thing uh, goes quarter of the way through the project and something happens and the flipper just goes AWOL on me. Well, what can I rent that thing out? And that's kind of my, uh, my safety net I see. And that's how I underwrite the deal and, and look at it from a risk perspective. It's a little different than most people, but I have the teams there and that's why we all work together and network. So in case something does happen like that, you know what to do. Not being one of the big boys investing quite yet, aka the accredited investor in the eyes of the SEC, it's tough to find good options for investing. But then I started investing in the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP Fund, which is crowdfunding the mortgage crisis in America. The fund collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when they approached me to become an advertiser of the company. You can start investing with as little as 100 bucks, and if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email to lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Rocky, what's your current two-week experiment that you're tinkering around with and a six-month bigger project that you're working on? I'll to go on a big vacation. So I think right now my focus is on getting everything done so I can go away and, and not have to worry about anything back home uh, and have it all automated and run without me. Six months, the big thing I'm working on right now is I lost a lot of weight a couple of years ago and I weight left and, and I'm good and I'm trying to just get to that next level. So I just started a new program, uh, which is a fitness program that's really about mobility and strength. So that will be the six month project to go through that and make myself physically stronger and much more mobile because without your health, then 
nothing else really matters. Eat junk, you're going to feel like junk at the end of the day. And that, that takes away productivity. Something that you recently thought about bringing your cash on for time savings or an improvement in quality of life. I think I need to get a virtual assistant so I can dump off a bunch of stuff. I just listed a rental the other day and literally I've got 25 emails and phone calls to deal with. And I do do my own property management and that's why I keep it just to five properties because I can manage that relatively easily. Um, so I think I've got to figure out and spend some money to make that whole process easier for me. It's, uh, it's sucking up too much of my time to have that many people calling me. Changed my business. I went through life for a couple of weeks there just listing things like dumb things I was doing and I to pass it off on them. But yeah, that's been a big help for me. Something that you recently changed your mind on since I see that, you know, often our ego gets in the way of greatness and a lot of times people just are unwilling to uh, have an open mind. And, you know, sometimes I catch myself in this predicament too. Been frustrated with and let go of, and that is all of the political stuff going around. And I've learned to just shut up and let it go and walk away and just ignore it all because I can't affect it. And all these people have too many emotions tied up in it and common sense and logic don't matter. So I've just, I think I've made up my mind to just let go of that and walk away and just leave it alone. I think that's a pretty uh, common sentiment again, for people who are killing it in life off to bigger and better things. I mean, the news is just uh, headliners, whether it's, political news or the news in your Facebook newsfeed. In life, there are people who consume content and people who create it. Abundance comes to those who create things. So a lot of guys, they say, or, uh, you know, even girls, they say that their spouse is really into news, you know, and they get wrapped around every little thing that happens with Trump or this or that. What is your thought on what do you do when your significant other is so entrapped in the news of other people and things outside of their circle of influence. I guess the first thing I would say is, did you notice that when you were dating them? And did you continue down a path? Pick your spouse wisely, because if your spouse leaves you, they're going to take half your money and a big chunk of your life. So make the decision wisely up front. If you're already in the situation, clearly, I just, we each have our own things that we love and do. Just consider it their hobby and let them go do their thing and let it be. Don't get involved in those conversations. It's not going to go well. So do your due diligence properly. Get a mentor. It seems like a lot more these days people are doing these types of things and they're keeping their money separate and they're doing all of this. Here's the deal. If you're getting married, you're becoming one. And if your attitude isn't 100% in, then in a sense, your underlying mindsets and attitudes are driving you into a place you may not want to go. But if your mindset isn't 100%, I'm going to make it work with this person, and their mindset isn't 100%, it's going to make it work with this person, then you're going in with the wrong mindsets, I think. That's the one. I've been married for over 20 years to my wife. We've had fights. We've had disagreements. But the one underlying thing is we have the same mindset. We will never get divorced. Knowing that 
you figure out how to make it work. I see it a lot. You know, one sauce is very controlling over the finances and know everything. The other one, that's just not their skill set. And what I see is when you combine finances into one pot and one person has total control over it, the other person disengages. And now they're feeling like, well, screw it. I just have an allowance. I don't care. Whatever. I'm just going to spend it. So it can go both ways, uh, you know, all in one, but so open communication. I'll be honest. My wife doesn't really touch the finances. She doesn't care. As long as she can enjoy what she wants, she's happy. And I think, you know, when I was young and stupid, I said to her, you should be on a budget. And quite frankly, I'm glad she said no, because she spends a lot less than that budget was. So we're actually in a better place. These are the conversations you need to have before you say yes. You need to make sure you're on the same page. Money-wise, kid-wise, religion-wise, where you want to live-wise, where are you two going together? Make sure you're both on the same page. I don't know that people have honest, deep conversations up front. The conversation's usually like, yeah, we'll get married and I'll change him. Guess what? You just created a disaster. The last question here is the Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we're continually struggling to gain perfection at. The first is the art of fulfillment, and the second is the science of achievement. So if you left us tomorrow, Rocky, and I were to email this out, what is your first secret or hack to the science of achievement? Particularly unique, but I will tell you, and I think this is something that I know you do on your your website as well. Begin with the end in mind. So I know where I'm going. I know what my legacy is. My eulogy is already written. Now I'm just living it. Every day I live my eulogy because I know where I'm going. Any way it, that manifests in everyday life? Uh Yes. So a big part of my eulogy is to be a great father to my kids. I have two teenagers. And so I build my life to have the freedom to be with my kids. And so every day I have time to spend with them and help and guide them and do things with them and teach them and help them figure out their purpose, not my purpose for them, their purpose for themselves. Are you trying to teach them about passive real estate investing or just flipping houses just to build that sense of what worth is? A little bit. What I'm more interested in teaching them is financial principles in the sense of this is what a balance sheet looks like. This is what cash flow looks like. This is what money is. This is how you lose money. This is how you invest properly. So learning to do due diligence, learning that you have to work. It takes work to do things, build a base, build relationships, you know, build, build good health habits, eat properly, work out, like all the different, I'm teaching the mindsets and the habits. So it isn't specifically to real estate because they might not be real estate people. From our call from our first chat, talked about editing our podcast and I get the VA to do it. But you mentioned you get like this 12-year-old kid to do it. And I joked about, oh, that's trading. You're teaching them trading your time for money. But, you know, when you're young, that's probably the best thing to do to reach that breaking point. 
to realize how backwards it is and how you need to be building streams of income. Yes, he's trading time for money, but you know what else he's doing? He's absorbing this good content. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and his dad tells me the content comes back in conversations and he's getting it. So here's a 12-year-old kid who's learning to be healthy. He's learning his money mindsets. He's learning that he needs to create a purpose. He's learning I shouldn't trade my time for money. He's learning a skill. That kid can go out and create his own podcast now and know how to do things. He can start monetizing it. Or he can teach other people how to do this. So he's got, he's learning skills that are transferable to whatever he chooses to do. It's interesting. Another thing that I remember you mentioned, and because we were chatting, and I said, oh, I want to do financial uh, literacy one day, you know, when I have the time and the money to uh, do more nonprofit things like that. Because I feel like people don't even know anything about, you know, credit cards or investing. You said, you know, that's a good idea. But if you're teaching kids or young adults, it's hard to teach them about a budget because they just don't have any. So what's your input there? How do you teach young people or, you know, the 30-year-olds who act like 12-year-olds about money? I think a 30-year-old is different than a 12-year-old. If you want a 12-year-old to learn about money, there's a very simple, easy way to do it. Give it to them. Give them money and say, you are responsible for X. Figure it out. So here's your school budget for clothes and school supplies. Here's your spending money for wherever. Go out and do it. And then sit there and mentor them. And when you walk into the store and they go, can I buy this? I go, you have money. You make the decision. And more often than not, you will be surprised at how smart, how quickly they will put the item back and the money back in their pocket because it's theirs. They're learning that they have to give it up for something. That's for a 12-year-old. For a 30-year-old who hasn't learned this and has money and, and is in a mess, that's a lot more difficult of a thing to change. I think that person's got to want to change and if they don't want to change and they're not willing to dig in and learn, there's so much free stuff out there. There's so much free content. If they're not willing to start and try and, and do something, there is nothing I can do for that person. And I think I've learned to just let go until they're ready and their mindset's right to learn and say, I want to fix this money problem in my life. There's nothing I can do for them. Yeah, thinking back to when I'm a kid and when I was a kid, a lot of my peers were sort of grown up in these commonness atmospheres where our parents gave us money just as an allowance or a handout, essentially. And we didn't really, it was never any kind of program where we, if we wanted something to go and get it, we just didn't learn these skills because we just didn't have money. I mean, me personally, I don't know how I did it, but I always like had found a way to save away $100, $200. I literally had money buried in the backyard because I always had money. And that think that's what kind of started me always thinking about it because I kind of had it. So I totally get you on there. Here to hack to the art of fulfillment to wrap us up. I think it's just letting go. It's just not holding on to things and just, kind of letting go and saying, you know, this situation, this moment, this point is what I'm being offered and 
just accepting it for what it is. Thing uh, we missed, uh, any message you want to get out there, contact information for people to get a hold of? People want to learn more about me and to listen to my podcast. It's Richer Soul. And uh, you can go to the website, richersoul.com and find links to the podcast or listen right there on the website. And that's probably the easiest way to find me. All right, Rocky. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.